morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 37 this morning. And as you turn there, uh, follow along as I read. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. They implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf and the, to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, your word again has something to teach us about who you are, about what you're doing, about your plan. And I pray, Lord, you would show us what that is, So, Lord, we can always put ourselves within your plan and live our life within your plan and be used by you to serve you and serve your people. I pray, Lord, that that's what today you would show us and that, again, you would display to us the abounding, infinite mercy that you have towards your people and towards what you are planning and have planned to do. And in doing that, Lord, we want to give you the glory and praise for your great mercy to us. And I pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so, just uh, stepping back a bit, giving you the purpose of the Gospel of Mark that I gave you way back when. Remember, the purpose of John Mark writing was to encourage the Gentile church in Rome. That was really the main reason. He wanted them to see Christ as the suffering servant, the suffering savior, that Jesus is the son of man, he is the son of God. And he arranged his material to show the Christ who speaks, the Christ who acts, the Christ who delivers in the middle of crisis. So Mark is kind of the go gospel, uh, the gospel of the servant savior. And the key verse, remember, that summarizes the whole Gospel of Mark is found in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So last time we were in this Gospel, we saw first that Jesus' mercy-filled mission was for all nations, that we saw that the unclean Gentile woman who by faith understood and accepted all that Jesus implied without question and without rationalizing Jesus' words. In other words, she, being a Gentile, 
recognize the right Jews have to first partake of God's blessing. Now put your eyes on chapter 7, verse 27. Let me go back a bit. It says there, And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's where we were last week. And just to bring you up to date, Jesus is instructing and informing her faith concerning the nature of his mission while he was on on this earth. The children, remember, are the Jewish people, the chosen children of God. The children... Uh, I mean, the children's bread refers to God's provision, to the spiritual food that he already gave Israel and gave to the people of God way way back from the beginning all the way uh, through uh, the time that he is uh, speaking now. And then, of course, the Jews would be the first to deserve God's care. And that was the point. And the bread from God's table, is meant for his people, uh, specifically the Jewish people. So then it would not be right to throw it away to the dogs. And remember, the dogs were considered to be the Gentiles, all right, the other nations. And so, in other words, the Gentiles uh, would get the blessing of God secondly, and the Jews would get it first, before Jesus' mission work was done among the Jews first. That had to be done first. She grasped that, uh, and she grasped that just as little dogs in Gentile homes would eat the crumbs that were thrown or fell to uh, from the table by the children who ate, that she came begging as a Gentile woman as one of these little dogs for a few crumbs that would drop from the table to the floor. And as one commentator wrote that summarized her request, he put it like this, that she said it like, okay, I understand that I'm not from Israel. I do not worship the God of the Isra- that the Israelites worship. Therefore, I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. I believe that. But there is more than enough on the table for everyone in the world, and I need mine now. She, she in in, in a way, couldn't wait for the plan of God to reach the point where it's going to go to the Gentiles. She kind of said to the Lord, give me what what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness because I need it now. And, of course, the, prob- the way why she needed it was her, her daughter was possessed by a demon, and she, he was asking Jesus to uh, take care of that and cast the demon out. Well, Jesus, because of his mercy, made sure that her request was not denied. She could have the spiritual food before it is officially given to the other nations. That just shows God's grace and his mercy towards, uh, towards the people. Uh, and so why he's not, and the reason why, because he's not just the savior of one nation, the Jews, he's a savior of all nations. And of course, that is something all of us should understand. Now that brings us up to the place where we're at uh, in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Looking at verse number 31 
it says that again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now, this is a very lengthy journey. This is, remember, Jesus is now in Gentile territories. Most likely the Jewish leadership is not going to follow him there to bug him, all right, and to bug the disciples. So he takes this lengthy journey. Sidon uh, was about 26 miles northeast of Tyre, and it was about 60 miles north of Capernaum where he's been ministering for a long time. It was like a, he was going like in a circle, a, a, cir- a circle uh, around the edge of the Sea of Galilee down into the area of Decapolis. Now, s- that means that probably the journey uh, from the Mediterranean coast to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, was about 120 miles. Now, just think of that. They did all that on foot. It takes us about uh, two hours to drive on good roads 120 miles. But could you imagine walking 120 miles? Well, that's what they did. Now, what's amazing is that it doesn't record anything on that journey. So we can, we can surmise that Jesus took this time to teach the disciples as he walked from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea all around to the other side or to the south side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the area of Decapolis. This is where the region where the two demoniacs were healed. Uh, and the, the healed demoniac in the Gospel of Mark had filled his country with the great news of, of what Jesus had done. Now, that's a very important point because Jesus is going back into Gentile territory to proclaim or to deal with the situation that we're going to see this morning, which is going to display more of his uh, mercy toward humankind. All right? Now, to set Decapolis up again in your minds, if you forgot, let's go back to chapter 5 for a minute. Because Decapolis and the demon-possessed man are very important to place in our mind to see what Jesus is doing. All right, now, in Mark chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, it says, When he got out of the boat, immediately the man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. Well, remember, first of all, the man was unclean because he dwelled amongst tombs. Secondly, we see the man was pictured in Scripture as a wild, ferocious animal uh, that in verse number 3 it says, and no one was able to bind him even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and chains had been torn apart by him and his shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. So, in other words, the demoniac was free to roam wild and naked night and day among the tombs and the mountains, and no human being had the power to restrain him. And, and the reason why, because he was filled with demons, and the demons had power over him. So this is a very dangerous region region to pass through uh, at least at that time. Uh, the turf was 
uh, of this chaotic demoniac was was just uh, filled with violence. Uh, the providence of God, though, brought uh, the demoniac's encounter with Jesus and his disciples with wide eyes were looking at what Jesus was doing and speaking uh, with this man. They were still thinking about how Jesus uh, told the wind and the waves to stop, and he did. So see, we, we see all this, that he was not dealing uh, with just one demon, but he was dealing with a legion of demons because it says in verse number 9 and 10, and he was asking him, what is your name? That's of Mark chapter 5. And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And of course, a legion, we know, is, is really a Roman legion of soldiers, was consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. So the chilling reminder of the number and the power and the intention of demons uh, is really uh, quite alarming that, remember, demons are fallen angels and powerful spiritual beings. They are never up to any good whatsoever. Now, when Jesus cast out this, uh, these demons from this particular man, there were several responses that took place. And the first response in, Rome, uh, in, excuse me, in Mark chapter 5, verse 14, is the response of the swine herders, uh, and it says in verse number 14, their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been de- uh, demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind, and the very man who had had a legion of demons in him. So see, the people saw this untamed, wild, ferocious, demon-possessed man who was now tame and calm and clothed and rational, and they saw a redeemed demoniac. They saw the fruit of the redemptive touch of Christ. They saw Christ brought calm to chaos and sanity to insanity. And so that really caught their attention. And so we see that these people there were alarmed at what had taken place, and they realized, as we should realize, that it is only Christ alone who can break the power of sin and Satan in our lives and set us free to serve God. But then the locals had a response to what happened too in chapter 5, verse 15 through 17. But in verse 15 it says, And they became frightened, when they saw this happen. And then verse 16, it says, and those who had seen it described it to them how he had happened to, uh, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and all, and all about the swine, because remember the, the demon were cast into the swine, the swine went over the hill, and the, all the swine died, and of course the demons uh, were uh, let loose again. And they began to implore him, to leave their region. They didn't want Jesus around the region. Kind of it messed their trade up. Uh, it messed some of their economy up because now all these pigs are gone, and I'm sure they were making money off those things. And then there's the demoniac's response to Jesus in verse number 18 through 20. All right. Now, 
Remember, this man was a first-generation Christian. He's the first to be saved in this region. So once he became a believer, and now he's sane and see what's going on, see what Jesus did to them, he didn't want to stay there anymore. He wanted to go with Jesus. He alone, among all his countrymen, saw in Jesus not someone to fear, but someone to love, someone to follow, someone to serve. But his request was denied. Verse number 18, look at it, chapter 5. As he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, in verse number 19, and he did not let him. So it was a reasonable request. However, Jesus did not permit the man to go with him. Instead, Jesus commanded the man to go to his own people and to report to them what great things the Lord had done for him. Look at verse number 19 of chapter 5. It says, what was he to report? In the middle of the verse, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them, verse number 19, what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. All right, now, that's where the, where the man was, and he lived in the region of Decapolis. Now, there's some basic principles underlying what goes on there in Christ's command to this man. The first one is that a person is not delivered from bondage merely for his own enjoyment of God-given freedom. Secondly, he's, he's delivered in order to give testimony to others concerning Jesus Christ. Therefore, this cured, cleansed, redeemed demoniac was urged to broadcast his story amongst his own people. So are we, and so that's exactly what he did. Now, look at verse number 20. It says, And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done, and everyone was amazed. Now, why do I say all that? Because it seems like this man did a sufficient job of giving the good news to the people that he dwelt with. He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ so people could repent and believe in him and enter the kingdom of God. And that's where we're at today. Because now Jesus goes back into that area, back into Decapolis, where he had healed the demoniac. And the response of the people in Decapolis are, they, they want to bring people to Jesus now. They want to bring people who are hurting to Jesus and who need the gospel and need what Jesus had to give. So by the response of the people in Decapolis, it looks like the cured, cleansed, redeemed demoniac had broadcast his story and what great things he had done far and wide in a very sufficient manner. It is recorded that from the Decapolis region, the general mindset was that Jesus could help. Matter of fact, he's the only one who could help. So they brought this man to Jesus. This man did not have a life-threatening illness, nor did he need a demon expelled from him. So these people from Decapolis 
Hearing the testimony about Jesus brought a special needs person to Jesus. And so the first thing we see is that Jesus' mercy-filled mission was to all nations. Now we see that Jesus' mercy-filled mission is related to prophecy. And we'll look at that in a moment. In verse number 32 of our passage, it says this. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. So this is what the people did. They brought this man to him. Now, the interesting thing about this particular passage of Scripture is that this little phrase in the middle of it, he spoke with difficulty, is a very unique Greek word that is used only two places in the Word of God. It is used right here in Mark chapter 7 and verse number 32, and it is used in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse number 6 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because you know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there a, was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that was called the Septuagint, all right? And that was written, of course, in Greek. And this is the word he uses in that passage of Scripture. So in other words, it looks like Mark is highlighting some, something that's, that was prophesied back in Isaiah that relates to his audience that is there watching what's going on. Now, the reason I bring this up is that the observation is that this man is also representative of the leadership of Israel. Now, what about the leadership of Israel? Well, the words and the ministry of Jesus are unintelligible to the leadership of Israel. They don't hear correctly what Jesus is saying, nor do they see who he is. Therefore, in other words, they remain spiritually deaf and dumb. They do not see that the Messiah has come among them by all these healings, by all these demons being cast out, by all these miracles and the teachings that Jesus was giving, they don't get it. They don't see it. So in a way, what's going on here is a rebuke to the leadership of Israel that they didn't even understand their own prophets. They've been spending so much time making up rules to protect themselves from not breaking the word of God were actually ignoring the word of God and people were not even being taught the scriptures at all. And so this comes up and we see that there are several things going on. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn back to Isaiah chapter 34 because there's two chapters uh, that go together here, 34 and 35. 35 is where I'm heading But in 34, uh, verse number 8, we see the the couple things that are going on here that I want you to just take notice of is, number one, there's the pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. It says in verse number 8, for the Lord, uh, this is Isaiah 34, verse 8, for the Lord 
has a day of vengeance, a day of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned to pitch or to tar. Its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched day nor night. Its smoke will go up forever from generation to generation. It will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. All right, in other words, there's a pronouncement of judgment upon Israel at this time. But remember, the uh, prophets do this all the time. When there's a pronouncement of judgment, there's also a pronouncement of hope. There's also, yes, God brings conviction because of the people's sins. He tells them of judgment, but he also tells them of, listen, in repentance, you can have hope and be brought back. So in chapter 34, we see that pronouncement of judgment. Now in chapter 35, beginning in verse number 1, we see that they begin to give a message of hope, but woven into it is the message that God also will bring judgment. It says in verse number 1 of chapter 35 of Isaiah, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout the shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Now, that is what is being said as to the message of hope. But I want you to notice also in verse number 4. It says, Say to those with anxious, with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, and he will save you. But notice verse 5. This is where I'm heading. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Verse 6, Then the lame will leap, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the are above. So in other words, the Lord is saying here, there is hope in the message of judgment. All right, and that hope is that God is going to unstop your ears so that you understand. And then he's going to loosen your tongue so you can shout for joy, so you can praise God. That's what he's going to do. And so this particular word in, uh, in verse number, uh, chapter 7, it is bringing us back to that time because after what I said last week about Jesus' mission and how he revealed that mission to the Gentile woman, the promise of Isaiah, this Isaiah passage, is that the Messiah, when he comes, he will give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and he would, he would loose the tongues of the mute. So the promise is in the backdrop of this particular narrative this morning. That, see, Jesus' mercy-filled mission is related 
to prophecy. In other words, they should have known that what Jesus was doing is exactly what the prophets said in the Old Testament. All you had to do is read it. That's all you had to do is read it. So, in this narrative here, we see Jesus' mercy-filled mission is demonstrated by compassion. And let's look at it. In chapter 7 of Mark, let's go back to Mark, verse number 33 to 35, that we see here that Jesus' mission is demonstrated by compassion. That Jesus dealt with this special needs man with tender considerateness. So when you're weary and when you're laden and when you're cast down and when you're riddled with sin and guilt and when you are kind of a person or a group of people that is cast to the outside, don't forget this that that is where the compassion of Jesus is often seen most. Now, let's look at verse number 33. There are th- there's really three things that Jesus does that shows how tender and how compassionate he is. In verse 33, it says, the first thing he did is would he spare the man his feelings. Is God concerned about our feelings? Absolutely. He spared the man his feelings. Look what it says in verse number 33. And he took him aside from the multitude by himself. Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus, out of care for the man, takes him from the crowds and deals with him in in private. In other words, he's alone with Jesus. Now, most likely, and you could surmise yourself that most of his life being um, unable to speak often affects your ability to what? Hear, right? So when you cannot speak or you cannot hear, then you cannot speak words correctly. In other words, this man's speech was unintelligible. He made sounds, but nobody could understand what those sounds were. So you could imagine how people treated him. You could imagine how much he was made fun of probably all his life from both family and friends and especially people he met. So Jesus spares his feelings and shields him from the staring eyes of the crowd of which this deaf man, I'm sure, and mute man was never had never felt comfortable around. So Jesus gives him his divine attention, and treats him as an individual. You know, do you think that this man has his attention? I think that Jesus had so captured his attention that what was going to take place next was very significant. So Jesus spares his feeling, but the second thing Jesus does is he doesn't speak to him. He uses sign language. Of course, Right? If the man can't hear, then what do you use next? You use sign language. That's what you use. And that's exactly what we see here. Jesus does not use words. He uses the man's senses that are still intact. The senses the man relied on every day to navigate and survive in this tough world. 
And Jesus, what he does is he touches him. He uses touch and he uses sight to communicate with the man. Now, how does Jesus do it? Well, Jesus used at least three actions to communicate. Here's the first action in verse number 33. He pushed his fingers into his ears. He pushed his fingers into the deaf man's ears. That's what he does. So he's, he's using touch to let the man know, and he's doing it tenderly. He's doing it in a way where the man is, is, is getting the sense that something's going to happen to him. All right, And then he touches him. It says in verse 33, And Jesus spit and then touched the man's tongue with his finger. After spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. So in the, in the ancient world, spittle was often believed to have curative qualities. Of course, Jesus did not need that to heal the man. Most likely, this was another visual. This was another visual to encourage the man that something was being performed on him for his good. Something that no one else was able to do with him or could have done with him. And so he touched him. And then the next thing he does is that he looked up to heaven and he groaned in his spirit. In verse 34, it says, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. So in other words, Jesus looks towards heaven. Why does he do that? Because he's showing the man the source of this miracle comes from the will of the Lord. He helps the man understand this is not magical. This is, there's no hocus pocus going on here. I am not doing any incantations to perform this healing. And Jesus also, with a deep sigh, a sigh appeals to the Father. And he knows that the answer comes from heaven, and it is divine, and it is almighty. So the sigh, the groaning in his spirit, connects Jesus with the man's pain and with the man's alienation and the man's isolation because of his infirmity. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said it like this, the sigh of the heart of God for, the, for his needy people. So Jesus is deeply connected to this man emotionally by way of touch, by way of being sensitive to his feelings. And he now has compassion that is, moves towards a person and he met the man right where he was. That's who Jesus is. That's the God in whom we serve. And so what happens, the third thing he does was this. He speaks in Aramaic. Why? Because the people around spoke, most likely, they could have been in Decapolis Greek speakers. And so he said to them in verse number 34, Ephata, or Ephatha, be opened. And Jesus Word of command goes forth, and what happens in verse 35? His ears are opened. Just think for a moment. The first words he heard came from the mouth of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tell me that's not cool. That is something quite unique. You know what? In a very real way, we really don't hear the words of Jesus till we get saved. We're deaf and dumb just like they were, just like he was, just like the 
leadership of Israel was. See, this, there's a spiritual thing going on here, and there's a physical thing going on here. This was a rebuke to the leadership of Israel. This was an encouragement to the Gentiles. This was an encouragement to people who have been marginalized in their life. Like, you know what? Maybe that's for these people, repentance and faith and a relationship with God. But for marginalized people, God doesn't care about us. No, that's not true at all. The compassion goes out to these people in such a way. It says in verse number 35, it says, And the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. Here Jesus merely commands the man's ears to be open and his tongue to be loose, and it was so. Jesus spoke, and it was done. Just like the God of creation who spoke and it was so. Just like the God of the Old Testament who had compassion on people. Just like the God of the Old Testament who showed mercy on whomever he chose to show mercy. So Jesus is exercising his authority and his will as God does. Jesus used his prerogative to show mercy on whomever he chose as God does. And there's no mention, amazingly, of the man's faith in this passage, in our text. So then it it really was not the man's faith that enabled Jesus to heal him. It was solely the power and the will of Jesus. That Jesus had the will and the power and the compassion as God does. Yet being completely a man, and he heals the man. So he's connecting himself back to the Old Testament. He's connecting himself back to the Hebrew Bible, back to the prophets, back to Moses. All these things are going on, and yet the religious leaders did not see that their blindness had closed themselves off to the righteousness of God that saves because they established their own righteousness by written and oral law-keeping. They saw themselves as strong, as able, as spiritually healthy and discerning. As far as they were concerned, they did not need a physician because they weren't sick. They didn't need Jesus to open their eyes because they could see. They didn't need Jesus to open their ears because they could hear. And yet their own, own prophets prophesied that that would be the case with the Jewish leadership. And don't forget Jesus' mission. He came into the world as the physician of souls. Jesus was deeply conscious of the sin disease gripping the spiritually dead souls of those with whom he ministered. That's why it said back in Mark 2.17, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. See, see, Jesus came to bring spiritual healing to the ungodly, to the unholy, to the spiritually blind, to the dead sinners like you and I. So then it's not, it's not only the Jewish leadership that is deaf to the verbal communication of the word of God. We are all deaf to God's truth. We need the Holy Spirit to make us alive to cleanse us of our filthy hearts, to open up 
our unplugged ears, to loosen our tongues so that we can praise God instead of poison coming out of our mouth most of the time. That comes from our heart. See, that's who we are. So see, the the message this morning is not just for a particular group, it's for everyone. That all of us have been there in that category. You weren't always a believer. You weren't always a Christian, right? You had to come under the conviction of the Spirit of God to see your sin, to see that you were sick and heading for hell. You had to see that. And you had to see Christ lifted up, dying in your place, shedding his blood so he can wash away your sin and granting you the faith and repentance to come and believe in him and turn from your sin and follow him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. See, that happens when God intervenes and breaks through your little shoebox in your life and speaks to your heart. So we are all deaf and dumb spiritually, aren't we? So we need Christ. We need the prerogative of Jesus Christ to show mercy on us. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and ask Christ to save us. And then there's one last thing in our passage of Scripture, and that's found in verse 36 and 37, that Jesus' mercy-filled mission is praiseworthy. It is praiseworthy. Now look at verse 36 of chapter 7. It says, And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continue to proclaim it. Hmm. Jesus said, listen, don't tell anybody about what happened here. He did it, remember, he did it in private, right? And most likely the eyes of the disciples were on that situation, right? But it was away from the crowds. So the more he commanded them not to tell, the more they went on to publish what he had done. The reason Jesus commands them is because he only had a short time before the cross. So he desires to kind of limit the spread of his popularity and of him being Messiah to the crowds because he wanted to spend time training his disciples. However, the reason the people could not comply to what Jesus was asking them to do because of verse number 37. Look what it says. And they were utterly astonished. That, that's a strong, strong term in, in the Greek. Actually, it's the word we get hyper from. They had a hyper astonishment that exceeded all boundaries. So in other words, the people were in a state of mind concerning this miracle in which they couldn't restrain themselves. It was just, okay, bursting out of them. It was gushing out of their mouth. They couldn't stop it. Now, I take that in a good way. In other words, they could not hold back the praise they had for God in what happened in that situation. The Gospel of Matthew concludes in the same narrative this way. So the crowd marvel as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind singing, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's how it took place there. They could not stop themselves. Could you imagine a bunch of people? 
who are so captured by Jesus Christ, so filled with his spirit that they cannot stop speaking about his goodness, about the great things he has done. See, in other words, when the Lord loosens your tongue, you should no longer be mute about him, about his purpose and his plan and the great things he has done in your life and will continue to do. We should be speaking that and won't in a way that we can't restrain ourselves. I have to talk about Jesus. I have to tell you about what he's done for me. I have to give you my testimony. I have to tell you. See, I have to do it. That's what ought to happen. In other words, they couldn't stop. Now, if you look at our text one more time, it says this, and they were utterly astonished, saying, look what they said. He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. See, Jesus brings healing to people's bodies and salvation to their souls. In the beginning, sin had spoiled everything. But Jesus displays the work of creation anew. When Jesus, the Messiah, is present, all things become new. That's why when Jesus came into this world and walked, all these things were happening. Demons were being uh, cast out. Uh, People were being cured. Uh, All kinds of healings, all kinds of things were going on because Jesus was showing when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, this is what will take place. There will be none of these things there because he will be there. But remember, Jesus didn't come yet in his the kingdom did not yet come in his fullness. This is a precursor. This is a just cracking open the curtain to let us peek inside about how it's going to be when Jesus Christ is actually reigning uh, on this earth. How is it going to be? So, in other words, we must always say that our Lord, of our Lord, that he always does things well. Jesus never did anything poorly. When God created, he did it well, didn't he? Before sin. What does it say in Scripture? God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. See, when God does things, he does it very good. In other words, he does it with excellence. He does it where it doesn't need any reforming. It doesn't need anything to be added to it. He does it completely, and everything that is needed is there in place. He does all things well. So when it comes to Jesus dying on the cross of Calvary, what can we say about that? Well, he will do that also well. What God does in redemption, he does well and he does completely. There's nothing that could be added to or improved upon your salvation. Everything is taken care of because he does all things well. So remember, in all God's dealing with us, he does well. Can the deaf mute say that before he was healed? God still did things well before he was healed. And he used this to show us how he actually does things. And when he does it, the man says, 
is here can speak here clearly and can speak plainly. Hear clearly and speak plainly. So these Gentiles, according to R.C. Sproul, these Gentiles notice this about Jesus. Look at him. They say to one another, look at Jesus. Everything he does, he does well. Because he is God incarnate, the one who creates, the one who redeems, the one who opens deaf ears and loosens tongues, does all things well. See, can we say that about our God? Can we be convicted of the sin that says God didn't get it right? Or what's going on in your life, you say, well, look at my life. Well, God must have made a mistake about what's going on in your life. No, he does all things well. All things for a purpose. All things mixed together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to the purpose, right? He does all things well. Everything well. So that we can, we can bank on that. So, so that is why Jesus' mercy is astounding because he gives hope to the unclean nations. He gives hope to those spiritually deaf and dumb. He gives hope to the hopeless. And in every case, he does all things excellently. That's who Jesus is. So you can see things are being narrowed down in the Gospel of Mark and, may, and, and crystallized to exactly who this person is. So I pray that you would come to know him as your Lord and Savior if you haven't. And if you have, please give your life to serve him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And trust him in all things. Even though, if you, even though you may not have the answers, trust him because he does all things well, that's who our God is. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you again this morning for the word of God and how you're displayed in it. I pray, Lord, that you would always use the word of God in our life, in our, um, in our particular situations. So, Lord, that we would always come to the conclusion that you are a God who does not make mistakes. You are a God who is merciful and compassionate. You care about our feelings. You care about our circumstances. You care about what we really need. And I thank you, Lord, for that. We see that today in this passage. And I just ask you, Lord, this morning, that we would always come to the conclusion, whatever happens in our life, that you do all things well. That's who you are. And we praise you that that passage is even in Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that you would just use this in our life to be better servants to serve you with the life that you've given us. We praise you, Lord, and we give you thanks. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we uh, sing a hymn, remember this morning we